A mother was preparing pancakes for her young sons, David and Billy. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. Their mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson. If Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. David turned to his younger brother and said, okay, Billy, you be Jesus. <laughs> Is it too much of a stretch to say that sometimes, if not often, we know what Jesus would do, but we're just counting on someone else to do it? This morning, we're circling back to one of the passages that we visited last week in James chapter 3. In this third chapter of his epistle, James contrasts godly wisdom with earthly wisdom in order to help us to discern who is truly wise and worth listening to. Who is it that possesses the wisdom from above, and how can we know? James says that we will know who is truly wise by what we see in their day-to-day -day lives. His assertion is that like the one Jesus made, we will know the true nature of teachers from the outcome of their teaching. Whether it's good or bad, Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. So James answers the question that he poses in verse 13, who is wise among you, by pointing to the fruit of people's lives, highlighting just what happens when they actually apply the wisdom they embrace. And James describes two types of wisdom, right? There's the wisdom from above and there is the wisdom of this world. And he describes two different, very different motivations that drive that. Those who demonstrate godly wisdom, motivated by a spirit of meekness, gentleness. They behave in ways that are charitable, in ways that are profitable for others. And they do so out of a, a deep sense of humility. And those who are guided by the principles of earthly wisdom behave in ways that are best for and call attention to themselves. They are driven, James says, by jealousy and selfish ambition. So right out of the gate, let me ask you a question. Where do you think you fall on that spectrum? What is at the bottom in terms of the motivation for your words, your deeds, and the way you treat other people? This latter condition that James writes about being motivated by selfish gain is sort of the give me the first pancake approach to life. But I make sure that I jostle enough to get first in line. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to make sure that I have what I want. And if that means that you don't get what you want, well, that's your problem, not mine. And that's a pretty common way of approaching things these days, isn't it? And guess what? Being a Christian doesn't make you immune to that. We could read this passage from James and say, well, I think he's making a contrast between believers and unbelievers, you know, believers that are generous and gentle and meek and unbelievers that are chasing after their own things. But that's not the case. James is writing to the church. James is trying to help his readers understand these are the implications of the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian. Much the same as Paul to the Ephesians, right? If it were true that we were automatically changed into everything God ever intended us to be at the moment of conversion, we wouldn't need Ephesians 4 through 6. It'd be all over. 
But we do need to be told, as Paul would say, it's important that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. It's important now that you are light, that you don't spend time in the darkness. It's important that you do these things. James is really saying the same thing. It's important that you, that you, that you are not a me-first kind of a person. Being a Christian doesn't make us immune to selfish desires. If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to Mark's Gospel, if you would, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. While you're going there, let me give you a little bit of a context. Jesus is with his disciples. He has just relayed to them what's going to happen to him. He has just told his disciples that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, that he's going to be crucified, that after he is killed and buried, that, that he will rise again. Three days later, he's going to be raised. He's just told his disciples, drop this bomb on his disciples. But in verse 32, you see, but they didn't understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So they didn't push into it. They're kind of like, I don't know, what's he talking about? I don't know what he's talking about. Let's just forget he ever said that. Really, pretty much that's what it boils down to. And then we come to our text here in verse 33. And they, the disciples, came to Capernaum, and when he, that is Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? It's kind of a trick question, as you'll see, because they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Can you imagine that? You talk about awkward. You talk about out of place. Their beloved rabbi has just told them he's going to be killed. He's going to die. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And what are we talking about on the road? Well, I'm better than you. Well, you are not better than me. Yes, I am. I'm a lot smarter than you are. You are not. This is, this is awful. So Jesus gathers them, sat them down. Verse 35, he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The disciples of Jesus are arguing with one another about who was the greatest among them. And yet when they are questioned by Jesus about what they're talking about, they're ashamed. They, they know that this is a carnal conversation. They know this is not something that they should be wasting time on. And so they're quiet. So Jesus reminds them, listen, if you really want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be great, you need to be least. If you, if you want to be something, you've got to be a servant. Last of all and servant of all. In other words, he gathers his disciples. He says, guys, you're shooting at the wrong basket. Completely. You are aiming at the wrong target. You are aiming 180 degrees away from what you should be shooting for. And you would think, okay, well, yep, Jesus gave it to them. Kind of both barrels there. They get it. This is all done. This isn't coming up again, right? Turn a couple pages to chapter 10. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is completely approachable. There's no excuse for them not to get it, but they don't get it. Chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we're able. They're very confident. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Look, even close followers of Jesus can get caught up in this quest for self-importance. We absolutely can desire in our heart of hearts to be great, great beyond perhaps what we ought to be. We can push people out of the way as we seek after the things that we think we need to make us happy. We can mistreat people and walk over them in our climb of the corporate ladder. We absolutely can do that. And what happens when we do that? Apart from having to hear the same instruction from Jesus twice about this shameful behavior of the disciples, what's the result of James and John's request? If you look at verse 41, you'll see it. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant. This is a word that means very displeased. Not mildly displeased, not a little bit irritated, really riled up indignant at James and John. Who are you to seek to do this end around on the, the, on the remaining ten of us and to seek these special positions from Jesus? Who do you think you are that you ought to sit in those places? We work hard too. We've been here from, you can hear it, right? You can hear it. It's all riled up. You know what? This is just what James says happens whenever anybody is motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition. James not only describes two kinds of wisdom and two kinds of motivation, he tells us about two outcomes. He says, those who possess and employ godly wisdom yield a harvest of righteousness and peace. And those who advocate earthly wisdom produce disorder and every vile practice. Now, I'm going out on a limb here, and I'm going to assume that if you have an interest in building a biblical home, and I hope you do, you're wanting a home generally characterized by righteousness and peace and not chaos and sin. Is that a stretch? You want a home characterized by righteousness and peace and not chaos and sin. Listen, in all my days as a pastor and as a counselor, I have never yet once had anyone come to me with a complaint that their life was too calm. <laughs> that their home was too orderly. I have never had anybody come to me and say, Pastor, can you help me learn how I can just inject a little more confusion into my existence? I need just a little bit more agitation and upset in order to feel whole. That doesn't happen. But I have, on many occasions, had plenty of people over the years come wanting to know, how can I settle these conflicts? What do I have to do right now in, in the midst of all these circumstances to make peace in a God-honoring way? How can I manage these crises out of 
my life. That happens a lot. So here's a thought from today's text. When things are out of control, very often people, even Christian people, are making choices in accordance with worldly wisdom, and they are driven by selfishness. When it's all messed up, very often people are making choices according to worldly wisdom and they are driven by selfishness. Now this is true in the church. If you've experienced some struggles in the church, you almost always find at the heart of those things is selfishness. The Apostle Paul called out quite a few people for bad behavior, if you were to list them all, because they were acting in selfish ways and desiring positions of prominence, right? Things are chaotic in the church when people are selfish. Things are chaotic in the workplace when people are selfish. It's not going to be hard for you to think right now about a co-worker who acts in a selfish way and that causes you consternation. It causes you grief. It may cause you time and money. And you're upset about that. That's common. And it happens in the family as well. That selfishness causes disorder and chaos. This happens when people act more like rivals than teammates. So if we were to phrase it in the positive, I'd say this. In order to attain the righteousness and the peace of a biblical home, it is imperative that family members understand themselves as teammates in a common cause and not competitors vying for individual accolades. We ought to be in this thing together for the glory of of God. I want to recognize three ways this morning briefly. There are more, of course, but just three for today. Three ways that destructive rivalry can show up in a family. And I have to qualify that and say destructive rivalry because there is such a thing as healthy rivalry, and we don't want to quash that at all. It's perfectly fine to want to win that game of cornhole. There's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to take home the golden putter from your mini golf outing. Okay, it's okay if you want to compete with one another for things like who can who can run the farthest or the fastest, who can swim best, who can hold their breath longest. I'm talking about destructive rivalry. I'm talking about that which is driven by self-seeking and which harms our relationships. The most common manifestation of this is, of course, between siblings. So common that there's a term for it, isn't there? We call it sibling. Rivalry, there it is. When brothers and sisters compete with one another for things like attention and affection and favor, who's the smartest, who's the strongest, who's the prettiest, who's the favorite, <laughs> who will get their way? Parents can end up refereeing, refereeing almost unbelievable disputes over things like clothing, television, Bedtimes. Well, you can see we're a Northeast Conservative Baptist Church, but some of you just want to say amen so bad. <laughs> I can just feel it coming out of you. I feel it. You're like, been there, done that, Pastor. Wow. Because this, this list is almost as endless as a child's capacity to clamor for what she or he wants in a moment. Not all siblings, of course, find themselves in conflict, but many do. And what is really at the heart of those skirmishes? Occasionally, there is a noble cause. And that's why, as parents, we want to be careful to listen. Because sometimes there's something really going on there. 
But a lot of times, what's at the heart of it? It's just selfishness. And all you need to do is listen. Listen to what's being done. He took my, uh, I want, or give me that, or stay out of my room. It's selfishness, the preservation of the self. So in my experience, it just doesn't seem to come naturally to brothers or sisters to defer, to yield, to give preference to, to their siblings in honor. Things that the Bible talks about, to sacrifice so the other can have something that they want. But, in my experience, this doesn't come naturally for adults either. This is not a kid problem. This is a heart problem. This is a human problem, which leads to a second way family members can treat each other more as rivals than teammates, and that is by engaging in power struggles. I'm sure none of you have ever had that happen to you. So let me explain it to you. Power struggles are little less than contests to determine who's in control. And as I mentioned in the previous message, kids really do need boundaries and they really do need limits in it. And it's an adult's job to set limits for those ch child ch and children. Uh, but I'm not talking about decent limit setting. I'm talking about what goes beyond decent limit setting and becomes a showdown between a parent, between their child to see who's going to blink first. You think of those westerns where everybody's just kind of waiting to see who's going to move, right? It becomes a showdown. These are the dances that keep kids at the table until they eat everything on that plate. This is the stuff that leads to our teenagers screaming down the hall and slamming a door. And in response, it leads us to ground them for life. <laughs> you ever had that come out of your mouth and you're like, what did I just say? A power struggle is an area, frankly, where two or more people want what they want so badly that reason has been suspended. Parents stop thinking about the goal of discipline being for their child and for their child's good and start dreaming up punishments that are going to make them feel better. How can I make him miserable? They stop thinking about the God-given task of shaping their children into God-glorifying adults. And kids, kids aren't thinking really about how to honor their parents in that moment. They're not thinking about how they're going to obey their parents in that moment. Everybody's really only plotting for a sure and decisive victory. See, in power struggles, the good of the other person, which we all know as Christians, is something that we are commanded to be sensitive to, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But in a power struggle, the good of the other person, what that other person really needs from us, what is best for that person, is absolutely eclipsed by a greater desire, and that desire is simply to win, just to come out on top. And there's a third seemingly unlikely, but not so much when you think about it, area, where rivalry manifests itself in the home, and that occurs in the marriage between husbands and wives. Jeremy Pierre is an associate professor of biblical counseling, a pastor of executive leadership, and an author. And this past winter, I was fortunate to uh, listen to some of his teaching in a workshop. And he was teaching about the marriage relationship, and he was asking that question of husbands and wives. Are you teammates or are you rivals? Are you working together? Or are you working at odds? P. 
Pierre contends that every marriage has a culture, the shared expectations that exist between a husband and a wife and that are established through various patterns of interaction and the culture of a marriage is shaped by the values of the partners. The key question to answer is what are these values? The values that shape each spouse's outlook and approach to marriage, what are they based on? Do they rest on the selfless and gentle wisdom that is from above or the selfish and chaotic wisdom that comes from below? He noted that every, uh, very often rivalry in a marriage does not present as a direct conflict. So it's not always out there right in front of, of you. It's not always even that obvious, but it's often just under the surface in what he calls a, a contest of priorities. That there are subtle ways that spouses can prefer themselves, can indulge themselves at the expense of their mates. What are some of those potential conflicts of priorities? Well, there is the superiority of attention. What are we going to give ourselves to? What are we going to pay attention to? One of the spouses determines for the marriage, this is what we're going to be about. This is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to value. This is, what we're going to, this is what's going to matter to us. Our corporate attention goes here. There is a superiority of time. One of the spouses intends to spend time on what he or she wants to do say, a hobby. And that spouse might take a break temporarily to come and visit with the mate and say, how are you? But really that break is temporary and only enough for me to touch base so that I can get back to what it is that I really want to do and where I really want to spend my time. There is a superiority of perspective. One spouse believes and acts as if their perspective is superior that it rules the day and that the other's opinion doesn't really matter. This spouse intends to call the shots when it comes to child raising, when it comes to church life, when it comes to relationships and so on. Then there's a superiority of money. It's not uncommon for spouses to have differing views of money and different values even when it comes to money. But it's very dangerous when the love of money overtakes the love of the spouse. And that happens with some frequency that all of a sudden we have a mistress and that mistress is money. And I'm going to do what I can to accumulate and I, and I can even justify that and say that I'm providing, that I'm doing good. But marriage is God's design to cure loneliness in the pursuit of money. We often leave people alone. So it can't be good. He listed other areas of potential conflict. That's enough. All I want you to do is just to, to start to think. Uh, I, I want you to think about what your marriage is based on. I want you to think, are there areas here where selfish ambition exists in subtle forms? Are there times where one spouse is lording it over the other in key areas of marital life? So, so here's the application for you married people today. Sniff this out a little bit. Do a little soul searching on your own. And I would challenge you to take it one step further and ask a couple of questions. Ask this of your spouse, if you dare. In what ways does my conduct in this marriage resemble selfishness? In what ways does my conduct in this marriage resemble selfishness? By the way, if you do this, set aside some time for conversation. Perhaps a neutral location might even be required. 
But it's not all bad, is it? Listen, we're all prone to selfishness. So I wouldn't be surprised if I asked that question of my wife, who's very sweet and wouldn't want to offend me, but... Like, honey, you don't even have to. I can come up with three. And that's without trying. But it's not all bad, right? So don't, don't see this as, oh, this is, this is awful. This is going to be majorly disruptive. No, this is, the, this is our sanctification. Marriage is our sanctification. Our partners are given to us by God to make us better people, given to us by God to make us better Christians. So don't be afraid of this. Ask that question, but also don't shy away from the positive because as Christians, there is positive in us. We have Christ in us. So ask this question as well. In what ways does my conduct in this marriage resemble selflessness? Because there's a very good chance that you are sacrificing for your dear one. And we don't want to gloss over that and forget about that and say, well, you need to fix these three. We also want to say, hey, listen, you know what? I know you don't want to do this, and thank you so much for doing it. I know this is hard for you. Thank you for the sacrifice that you're making. I know you hate this, and yet you do it every day. Thank you. There's all kinds of that stuff in your marriage, right? But ask those two questions if you would. I would say this, it takes a degree of humility to ask and listen to the answers to these questions. And the reason I bring it up is because that is exactly what is needed if you want to overcome rivalry. Humility is the antidote. Humility is the cure. Humility is what we need to overcome destructive rivalry in our relationships. Humility, says Professor Pierre, changes the air, changes the atmosphere of the home. Listen, that is profound. Humility changes the atmosphere of the home. Now, we know a little bit more about air exchangers these days than we used to. Paying a little bit more attention to that, right? The air exchanger moves the old air out and brings fresh air in. And our quest for peace and a harvest of righteousness in our home will necessarily involve exchanging the air of selfish ambition and jealousy with a fresh dose of humility. Humility is the basic culture, the starting point, the ground zero for God-pleasing relationships. And the onus for humility is on each of us. In other words, I don't think you can be passive about this, at least not, and be, and be obedient, right? Because the Bible tells us as believers to be humble. The onus is on us. In his word, God puts the responsibility for humility on the individual's shoulders. It's important to recognize this. I'm sure I've said it before, but part of my job as a pastor is warning you all. People will say to me, well, I'm going to pray to God for humility. I'm like, don't do that. Not just yet. I mean, if you've, if you've tried everything you know, Right? And you need the Lord to do that for you. But he's going to answer that prayer, brother. And, you know, it's going to happen. So do it yourself. In other words, God is so kind to say, listen, take care of that. Or I will. Not in a bad way. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he wants you to be humble. And he wants you to have healthy relationships. He does not want you to have a life that is full of strife and disorder and every evil deed. So be humble, James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.5. 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 1 Peter 5.6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves. Now let, let me bring this full circle and make an association from 
from the beginning of this message. The imperatives that I just read from James and Peter are, in short, ways of saying to us, ways of saying to one another, to you, you be Jesus. That's what it means. Be humble. You be Jesus. Yeah. You might not get the first pancake. But you know what? In due time, if you are meant to have a pancake, you will get your pancake. And with God, you'll get so much more. Let's not count on someone else to act like Jesus when we can. Let's not, let's not presume on someone else to act like Jesus when we ought to be acting like Jesus. He gives us both the example and the power to live humbly as we ought. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul wrote this, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humble yourself. Empty yourself. Forget about yourself like Jesus did. And trust that in time, God will honor. God will care for. God will do justice for you. How do you know that? Because he did it for his own son. Trust him. Let somebody else have the first pancake. You, you, you be Jesus. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your word. We certainly can get in the way of ourselves, and we certainly can cause messes in our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you for your wisdom, though. It pulls us out of the rut. It pulls us out of the ditch. It gives us the direction that we need. Thank you for your reminder today that we are to be humble people. We have every reason to be humble and no real reason to be pompous or arrogant or puffed up or to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to think sensibly and rightly because you have located us, God. You have located us in creation and we are creatures and you are the creator and we praise you and thank you. Beyond the creator, you are the savior. When we couldn't get to you, you came to us in the form of your Son. Father, you have reconciled us to yourself. When we ponder these great truths of your word, Lord, we have no, no response other than to be humble. So help us, Lord, to remember them and to spend time in them and to keep them in front of us so that we can glorify you in the way that we live our lives and the way that we conduct and order our families, that the honor would be yours. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.